The Democracy Paradox podcast is sponsored by the Kellogg Institute for International Studies, part of the Keough School of Global Affairs at the University of Notre Dame. The Kellogg Institute has a 40-year history of excellence in advancing research and education on global democracy and human development. Learn more about the Kellogg Institute, including its world-renowned visiting fellowships for scholars at various stages of their careers at kellogg.nd.edu. Boeing is pulling out DuPont, Ericsson, analog devices, Bombardier. And eventually all of these things are going to cause supply and production chain issues and unemployment in Russia. So Mr. Putin doesn't have an infinite amount of time before havoc is wrought. Welcome to the Democracy Paradox podcast. This is my daddy. My name is Justin Kemp, and I am your host as we explore the Democracy Paradox. Thanks for listening to Democracy Paradox, a podcast on democracy, democratization, and world affairs. We talk about big picture insights to better understand political issues and events. These are often complex ideas that might even be unfamiliar. So I always provide a complete transcript at democracyparadox.com. Now, today's guest is Catherine Stoner. Catherine is the Mossbacher Director at the Center on Democracy Development and the Rule of Law, a professor of political science at Stanford University, and a senior fellow at the Hoover Institution. She's also the author of the recent book, Russia Resurrected, Its Power and Purpose in a New Global Order. Catherine was actually a guest of the show last year. She argued Russia's strength was underestimated. A lot of people at the time had said Putin plays a weak hand well, but she contended Russia's hand was not necessarily so weak. Nonetheless, in the invasion of Ukraine, it does seem Putin has badly miscalculated. Catherine has written a new article on the subject for the Journal of Democracy titled How Putin's War Has Ruined Russia. So I thought it was a good time to revisit this topic with Catherine to understand Russian power as it stands today. But I also had other questions for Catherine, such as, did she overestimate Russia before the war? Or do we underestimate Russian power now? Feel free to send me your opinions and thoughts to jkempf at democracyparadox.com. But for now, this is my conversation with Catherine Stoner. Catherine Stoner, welcome back to the Democracy Paradox. Thank you very much for having me. Great to be here. Well, I want to start with a quote from your recent Journal of Democracy piece, How Putin's War in Ukraine Has Ruined Russia. It's a fascinating piece, and in it you write, in a little more than eight weeks, Putin's unjust and ill-conceived war has erased the gains of the last three decades. Let's just take a moment and briefly revisit those gains, because I think it helps to understand where Russia was before the war began. And I think three key areas were very important. One was the economy. Another was in terms of international relations. But a third was also in terms of its military. Russia's obviously seen some setbacks in terms of its military through its invasion of Ukraine. And You even make the case in the paper that people won't look at Russia's military the same way that they did before. Was Russian military power 
overstated before they actually began the invasion? So no, I think not. We haven't seen the full force of the Russian military in, in Ukraine, and hopefully we won't. It has obviously failed in a couple of important ways. But I think we have to also remember how it did in, in Syria. And it hasn't been able to use the Air Force in the same way. And I think there are lots of reasons for that. But that's obviously been a serious problem for them. The other is that I think the parallel I use is when the United States military, which is undisputedly on paper and in practice, the most powerful military in the world. And we spend the most, we have the most. But, you know, context is a lot and you can't always use everything you have in every context. So remember when we went in under George W. Bush into Iraq and Bush was told by Rumsfeld and Cheney that American tanks would be met by Iraqis with rose petals thrown on the ground and we would be welcomed and it would all be very easy. Well, it turned out it wasn't that easy. I mean, we did a lot better afterwards than the Russians are necessarily doing right now, but it took a lot more time. So I think we're being a little bit impatient in expecting that, you know, the Russians would quickly topple Kiev. So what happened? I think there's some bad intelligence, just as there was for us with WMD in, in Iraq, right? It turned out Saddam Hussein didn't have WMD, and it turned out not all Iraqis were happy to have us there or see us. And so was Iraq, after all that money and time, an unqualified success? It's not clear. So let's go back to Ukraine. I think that Putin was given intelligence indicating that President Zelensky would quickly leave, and he didn't, and that the Russian tanks would be welcomed by the Ukrainian people who, after all, were being held hostage by these corrupt Ukrainian elites who'd been bought off by the West. And they would be happy to have their Russian brothers come and, and rescue them. Well, that turned out to be wrong. And, you know, I think there's a problem with autocracies, as there is sometimes, as we saw in Iraq, with democracies where you don't want to believe disconfirming evidence or it gets discounted. And I think that happened here. And in an autocracy, the problem's even more acute because no one wants to bring Mr. Putin something that would be disconfirming. And so I think that's partly what happened here. The other thing is, you know, they are unfortunately making some headway now in eastern and, and southern Ukraine and beginning to pound cities. Now, the Ukrainians are being armed by us and they're fighting for their land and they have a very clear purpose in their fight. And I think it's pretty obvious that many Russian soldiers do not have a purpose or understand why they're there or understood why they were being sent there to begin with. And so understandably might be a little hesitant to actually shoot people who look like them and who speak Russian. And, you know, if they have Ukrainian grandmothers or mothers or used to vacation there. So I do think that's part of it, too. It's, it was different in Chechnya. It was different in Syria. Those people don't look like Orthodox Russian guys, but these people do. And so I do think that's part of explaining the morale issue. And then finally, you know, one of the problems with Putin's Russia, and this is something I talk about in, in the book, and this is certainly a break on Russia's exercise of global power, is corruption within the military itself. We heard them selling off their equipment in Belarus before they even entered Ukraine and then stealing things in Ukraine and sending them home to Russia. So you know, that's indiscipline, it's corruption. So I think that also has a lot to do with it. So I had on a scholar, Zoltan Barony, months ago, and he had written an interesting book about militaries in the Gulf region. One of the points that he was making is that in autocracies, sometimes they can struggle in terms of their 
military because they don't empower people within the military to be able to make decisions. They can struggle to be able to operate as effectively as democracies do. And it was an interesting point that I hadn't really heard made before. And I think back on that a lot when I see some of the behavior that Russia has made in their invasion of Ukraine, where it seems like if it's not a senior officer that people are struggling to be able to know what it is that they're supposed to do. It sounds like Russia doesn't have the same kind of non-commissioned officer corps that the United States does, that if you lose your lieutenant or lose even a general, that the army's not in disarray because non-commissioned officers will step up and know exactly what they need to do. Is there some of that, that Russia's military wasn't as strong because they don't empower the people in the military to make those type of decisions? Yeah, that's what we're hearing for sure is they don't have this non-commissioned officer corps. And that might also help explain why it is that so many generals have found themselves in direct danger. So, you know, so many of them seem to have been killed. So the puzzle is, why is that? And so I do think that's it. And that's an organizational issue. That's not one of the things that they did in their reform. The other thing that we're hearing more recently too, Justin, is that Mr. Putin himself and Patrushev and uh, also the chief of the general staff are becoming sort of armchair generals and that this is kind of messing up a chain of command because Putin himself really doesn't have any military experience whatsoever. And frankly, neither does the Minister of Defense, Sergei Shoigu. That's not his background. So, you know, I think it could be a situation of top-heavy uh, leadership trying to call the shots on the ground without having appropriate information and then not sufficiently empowering the people that they put in power. So I think that's true. And then the organizational issue that Zoltan mentioned to you makes total sense to me. So I also heard you on a podcast about two months ago. It was News in Context. And in it, you had said that Russia had sent in their B-team into Ukraine. And the host pressed you and said, well, is there an A-team? And you said that there definitely is an A-team, but they weren't in Ukraine. Well, they weren't in the battle for Kiev, I would say. But yes, I think that they have now shown up in eastern and southern Ukraine. The other thing is, too, Justin, you know, the expectation that they would be welcomed was really widespread. And it was allegedly so widespread that the tank operators who were approaching Kiev, remember that big 40-mile-long convoy? Apparently, they had their dress regalia, some of them, in the tanks for the victory parade. That would happen on day two. And so they weren't terribly worried about supply chain because the Ukrainian people would be welcoming them. And so they would give them gas and food and whatnot. That wouldn't have been a problem. And also, you know, Putin exhorted the Ukrainian military to revolt on day two or three and join the Russians also didn't happen. So I think it's kind of confirmation bias and then sending in troops that were not prepared to do what they were being asked to do and not being welcomed in the way that once they found themselves there, thought that they would be. And then you can kind of see I think how this all unravels in the evidence that's been left behind in Bucha and in European and other places, just horrible things. The accounts are that initially the Russian troops that came in were professional and not bad. And then they become more and more suspicious, clearly, of Ukrainian civilians who are not as helpful and welcoming. And then they begin to suspect as they're being shelled and bombed by the Ukrainian military 
that the civilians are giving information about their positions. It doesn't excuse, but you can see what happens where they get more and more hostile toward the civilian population and then just brutal with the civilian population and arbitrarily killing and treating them just horribly. So I think that this is a process of unraveling as well. And I think that that's a perfect segue in terms of how that unraveling in terms of their military operations ties back to the unraveling in terms of their international standing. Because the humanitarian crisis, the war crimes that were committed are clearly an issue just of itself. But in terms of the impact on Russia, the rest of the world has become much more united than they even began as they've seen some of the consequences of this war and seen some of the behavior of the Russian military. Going forward, do you expect the American allies to remain as united as they've been in their support of Ukraine? Well, I think that was unanticipated as well by President Putin. That is the consensus and the rapidity of the response in terms of sanctions and the unanimity. Now, whether that should have been unanticipated is a question because we've maintained pretty good sanctions unanimity since 2014 as well. But You know, the U.S. in revealing what it knew before the invasion didn't waste time by, you know, just sitting back and pointing out they're on the border. But actually remember all of the diplomacy ahead of time where Blinken was going to Europe and that was to prepare a response quickly so that when it did happen, the response had already been negotiated and agreed upon. And I think that was not completely anticipated. Remember, the Russians kept on saying, we're not going in. We don't know what you're talking about. And clearly the U.S. said, well, you are and we can see it and we know. Now let's go make sure our allies are all on board. So I think that was not anticipated. That's from Putin being, you know, isolated and not fully appreciating how the rest of the world thinks. That's not how he thinks. So I think that was a surprise. In terms of keeping the alliance together, obviously that's the key here, right? And one of the things that Russia has done that I talk about in in my book, Russia Resurrected, and I want to separate Russia from Russia under Putin because it's not inevitable that these things happen. But he's quite carefully in the last 10 or so years pursued a policy of trying to disrupt the European Union because it's better for Russia to deal bilaterally with countries. So broke Germany away in terms of energy policy from the rest of the EU and really creating, and Germany went for it, a dependence. So it's not just an evil Russian plan. I mean, it is partly an evil Putin plan, but Germany made the decision. And so over time, this dependency grew. But then Putin did things like, huh, who better to run the company that is building Nord Stream 2 than the former chancellor of Germany, Gerhard Schroeder. And Gerhard Schroeder, there's a really interesting piece in the New York Times a couple of weeks ago, makes like almost a million dollars a year from Gazprom (laughs) still. So that was done carefully. And then the Russians in the interim have also built up storage facilities that they own in Germany and Europe. So the trick will be maintaining unanimity, keeping Germany on board and also Hungary, because the strength of the European Union is in its unity. The weakness is that it needs its unity to make decisions. And so right now, Viktor Orban, who's a Putin fan, is saying, hey, you know, we're not so keen on dropping natural gas supplies from Russia. And, you know, the Germans, it's, that's going to be hard and it's going to take some time. And until it happens, Russia's making, you know, a billion euro a day from the sale of oil and natural gas into Europe. 
So I do want to come back to the idea of energy and the way that that impacts the economy. But to step back to just the alliance and American allies, Luke and Wei wrote recently in the Journal of Democracy, there remains a chance that the global liberal project may emerge from this darkness stronger and more invigorated than before. And that line was written long before Finland and Sweden began their application to NATO. How do you feel that the applications or the inclusion of Finland and Sweden would affect geopolitics, particularly in terms of how it would affect Russia's place in the international order? Yeah, so I mean, Finland and Sweden are relatively large developed economies and of course democracies. So this is big in some ways, but they're not great military powers per se. It further, I suppose, quote unquote, encircles Russia by NATO. But to be perfectly honest, we got intercontinental ballistic missiles. We had Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania right on Russia's border already, and they've been there since 2004. So, you know, does that give us extra military purchase on Russia? I'm not sure that it actually does. But it does, in a sense, I mean, Lucan's right in that here are liberal democracies stepping up and saying, hey, we want to be part of that. We want to be defended by other countries that we count as liberal democracies as well. But there is a problem that's Turkey. And I think eventually they will come on board, but they're kind of a frenemy of Russia's. And Sweden and Finland, you know, have Turkish emigres there that the Turks don't like and think are terrorists. So what does it do? I think in part it's symbolic for Finland and Sweden, but it also does, yeah, I guess consolidate at least some aspects of the liberal democratic project. But I think the EU has been pretty important in that as well. I'm still worried about the Liberal Democratic Project, partly because of the United States and our fractious politics. And until we we are able to resolve that, I think it's in danger still. Last time we talked, you emphasized how Russia had found ways to sanction-proof its economy and had found ways to work around the sanctions, even though the sanctions clearly did have an effect. The sanctions that we put in place because of Crimea and because of their involvement in Ukraine already dating back to 2014. Why should we expect sanctions to work better and the type of sanctions that we're applying today regarding the current invasion of Ukraine? The sanctions that we have put on since this invasion uh, of Ukraine are pretty much the biggest sanction regime ever put on an economy ever historically. And you could have said that about the sanctions after 2014, to be honest, as well. And so now we've gone even further. So this is not just targeted at individuals, it is really targeting whole sectors of the Russian economy. We've even sanctioned the Russian Central Bank. They cannot borrow abroad. They cannot access the 600 and, well, they have 630 billion in foreign reserves, or they did February 23rd, the day before the invasion. That's like the fourth largest foreign reserve in the world. And 300 billion of that is under sanction and they can't access it because it's in Western banks. And then the remaining 330 billion or so is in gold, which they can't sell. So there's a war chest that Putin cannot use. So I think that was also unanticipated. And we had not done that before. And then beyond that, as I said, individual targeted sanctions, we actually have a paper here in a working group at Stanford that we're working with the Ukrainian government on how we can take sanctions further. We need to take sanctions further into the delivery of oil, for example, globally, which we can do and haven't done yet fully, although we here in the U.S. have sanctioned receipt of Russian oil 
The problem is we didn't really receive much Russian oil, so that's not terribly meaningful. But the Germans uh, and the EU are saying that they will get off Russian oil by the end of the year, which is faster and easier to do than natural gas. All of this is going to hit the Russian economy very, very hard. And, and that's not something that was ever put in place before. And then beyond that, the collapse of the Soviet Union, even just prior to it, a lot of international companies moved into Russia, right? Here was a new market that was available to them. And Yale Business School keeps a list of who either has seriously curtailed their operations or who has declared that they're leaving entirely. And a couple of days ago, it was McDonald's is gone. I think they can live without their Big Macs. But in the piece in Journal of Democracy, I say they can live without Burberry or Chanel, but they can't for a long time live without some of the other companies that provide computer chips or airplane parts, but also um, replacement parts are not going to be that easily available. Boeing is pulling out DuPont, Ericsson, analog devices, Bombardier. And eventually all of these things are going to cause supply and production chain issues and unemployment in Russia. So Mr. Putin doesn't have an infinite amount of time before havoc is brought on the Russian economy not just because of our sanctions, but because of some of these other things as well. And that'll be much harder to adjust to than the previous sanctions regime. The other thing is, just as the Bolsheviks did in 1917, terrible irony here, Putin and the Duma have threatened to confiscate the assets of international companies that leave. Those companies are never going to come back to Russia, not in our lifetimes, Justin, dare I say. And I hope you live a long and happy life. Um, and I plan to. And that's just terrible for Russians. That's going to cause unemployment. They don't make all of the things, even though Mr. Putin thinks they can become an autarky and substitute for those products by producing them locally. They can't do that with everything. They had been integrated into the global economy. And so this is going to be tremendously problematic for them in the coming year to two years. And estimates are that the economy will contract to something like a negative 11% growth. So this is a really important point that you're making. When we think about sanctions and we think about tools of economic warfare, I think there's a real debate about whether or not it's a short-term impact that the economy then adapts, figures out how to adjust, and then long-term works around those problems. You're making the case that this is going to have long-term impacts, and not only that, but the problems are going to actually escalate in the coming months and years. Am I understanding that right? Yeah, that's right. And some of these things will be, you know, almost irrecoverable in the next generation or two. So let's say, for example, that the Europeans actually are able to hold together and do create substitutes for Russian natural gas. That will require them building liquefied natural gas terminals. So natural gas has to be turned from a gas to a liquid to be moved on a tanker, let's say, and then back to a gas. So this requires infrastructure that the Germans don't currently have because they were just bringing it through pipelines from Russia to Germany. So let's say that they're able to build that infrastructure in the next two to three years and they stop receiving natural gas from Russia. They're not coming back. That's gone forever in, in terms of revenue. That's catastrophic. And oil, which you can find alternatives to that more easily, and by the end of this year, probably not coming back. Those are big, big, big problems for the Russian economy. And so they've got to find other markets. And they have ramped up in China. 
but that creates a dependency on China. So you can bet China's going to negotiate rock bottom prices and same with India. And this will also take time to increase the flow. Some of that's in place already. There's a big pipeline called Power of Siberia running into China, but these things can't happen instantly. And it's not clear that they can ramp it up to replace the revenue from the European market. Again, these things are likely to have lasting impact on the Russian economy over a generation at least. So an even larger question, though, is whether or not the West should completely decouple its economy from Russia long term. Because one of the problems that we've had with integrating Russia into the world economy is that because it's so kleptocratic, it makes us somewhat complicit into their corruption, because you have people who've gained their wealth through corrupt practices that are now investing their money into Western companies, into Western real estate that's essentially becoming whitewashed once it comes over here and that we're now depending upon. But it's really tied back to the kleptocratic practices back in Russia. Is the long-term answer going to be that we just need to completely cut ourselves off from Russia so long as they are as corrupt as they've been? So I think the answer is different for different countries or even regions of the world. Europe can't right now. You know, it's going to take time. They can't turn it off instantly because of energy in particular. There are also precious metals, and Russia is the world's largest exporter of of wheat. So we better come up with other supplies to substitute for that, because Lucan may be right that this is a reinvigoration of the liberal project. It could be the end of globalization, right? Because here is a great demonstration of, of what happens from globalization when potentially we're going to see food insecurity because of this. So this will take time. There are also parts of the world that are illiberal. Turkey is not a steady ally at the moment of the U.S. It's not a steady ally of Russia either, though. Um, And of course, there's China and there's India under Mr. Modi. That is not as steady an ally for us as we need it to be if we were to shut Russia off. And they're not willing to shut Russia off. They need the energy, but they also buy a lot of weapons from the Russians. Then in the Middle East, Russia has done a lot in the last 10 years in terms of dealing with countries that are traditional enemies of one another, selling weapons. Russia is the second largest purveyor of weapons in the world. We in the U.S. are number one. And they sell to people we wouldn't necessarily sell to. And they've also moved through parts of sub-Saharan Africa, helping Central African Republic sell its diamonds and providing security and then ensuring that preferred candidates stay in office in those places so they still have access. So there are parts of the world that will not want to isolate Russia or the Russian economy, and we can't count on that, although, you know, obviously we are one of the biggest economies in the world. And China is another one that will not want to isolate the Russian economy, at least not at this point. They need that energy. So I want to turn back to Russia itself, because we've talked a lot about the international relations and the geopolitical consequences. Do you feel that Russians fully realize the consequences from this war so far? So some do, and many of them have left. Some left in the last 10 years, and there's been what has been called by you know the Atlantic Council and others, for example, in a study they did called the Putin exodus. Others have left more recently since the invasion. They're saying something like 50 to 70,000 are in Georgia alone. 
but they've also tried to go to other parts of the former Soviet Union and, of course, to Europe and to the United States and Canada. But they can't use their credit cards or sometimes access their bank accounts outside of Russia because of sanctions, which is kind of a negative externality that I think wasn't intended. So those folks have voted with their feet. And then the public opinion polling that we've seen has shown actually frighteningly high levels of support, 81% in the first poll that came out at the end of March, and it seems to have dropped slightly to, you know, maybe 75, 76% overall. It's lowest among young people, ages 18 to 24. And, you know, the Levada survey organization asks every year, and they've asked the last 15 years, if um, you plan to emigrate permanently. So it's gotten as high in 2019, I think it was 53% of 18 to 24 year olds in Russia said they were planning to emigrate. That dropped to about 48% in the most recent poll. I would expect given that we're also seeing sentiments toward the United States and Europe with this war getting more negative, that it'll drop further. But still, that's a shockingly high number, you know, given that Putin has control over the media. Now, you know, there's practically no independent media anymore. You know, that's another thing that's been just completely destroyed, although it was on the path to destruction already. That fines are very high for calling the special military operation, as it's called in Russia, a war. Um, it can be almost a month's salary for the average person. And then you could face jail for up to 15 years. So do they realize the destruction? Well, no, probably not, those who are still there. However, they are certainly facing some major inconveniences, especially people under 40, not easy to go places, not able to get your new iPhone or your iPad, some people being unemployed. The state may be covering their salaries for a bit, but you know this won't be able to go on forever. Um, so, you know, we saw in a month, even with state media that support is dropping, if casualty reports are as high as we're being told they are, then, you know, I think that's going to drop even more. So again, it, it puts Putin on a timeline. And even if people won't come out on the streets to protest the special military operation, they might still come out to protest the economy or inflation. Could you be arrested for that? Well, probably because they can make rules about anything they want. But technically, they're not protesting the war. They're protesting inflation and unemployment. And Putin does care about his popularity, his approval rating. So he doesn't want that to happen. So he doesn't have an infinite amount of time for economic reasons and then social unrest as a result. Yeah, of course, one of the other negative consequences of this war has been the loss of freedoms and liberties within Russia itself. The Economist, not too long ago, their big headline on their issue was the Stalinification of Russia. And they're not the only ones who've hinted at this idea that Russia is turning back towards the past. And it's necessary to realize that Putin's regime within Russia has very different interests than we do in a democracy or in Western democracies. And you mentioned this in the paper where you write, a patronal autocracy makes very different choices as to what serves the national interest than would a more open and accountable political system. Is the isolation of Russia actually in Putin's interests because it allows him to consolidate his control? It is generally, I think, not a sign of a regime's strength when it has to use force against its own population. That's expensive. And Tim Fry writes about this in his book, Weak Strong Man. 
I think you don't want to underestimate the tools an autocrat has, right? And one is force. The ultimate sanction is killing somebody or putting them in jail. But generally, the use of that reflects insecurity and you have to use it strategically. And so now what has happened is, you know, Russian society, if you believe Seymour Martin Lipset in modernization theory, they became an upper middle income country, according to the OECD. Their GDP per capita at purchasing power parity made them look like Spain or Portugal or, you know, 29,000 US dollars. That's pretty good in 30 years. You know, that's a big change. That's almost twice of China's GDP per capita at purchasing power parity. You know, Russians were developing a, a middle class and we saw them come out on the streets in 2011 and 2012 to protest corrupt Duma results and Putin's return, his announced return without actually having won an election yet. And, you know, the penalty for protest went up. And we then saw the regime crack down harder and harder over time as they became more assertive internationally as well. So getting harder on the media, getting harder on civil society organizations, strengthening their foreign agents law, then poisoning members of the opposition, like Navalny, for example. He made the mistake of not dying and then he came back, right? It's his country and he wasn't going to let these people take over. That's really the last time we've seen big street protests is over a year ago when Navalny was jailed upon arrival. He's now gotten an extra nine years in prison. He's not getting out anytime soon as long as Putin is alive and running Russia. So what's happened is now there's really no opposition. And Vladimir Karamuza, who you know didn't have the same gathering power as Navalny, he's also in jail. Boris Nemtsov killed in 2015. So who is the opposition exactly who would organize civil society? And you know that has been emasculated. It happened over time. And then now, you know, independent press has been pretty much driven out of Russia. So they've really gone back to the USSR in many ways. But what they don't have is the same sort of institutional infrastructure to suppress dissent. And they also, therefore, don't have the same institutional infrastructure like the party or the Politburo to constrain the president. So remember, Khrushchev was ousted by his own Politburo. Gorbachev faced a coup attempt by his own Politburo. There isn't such an organization that could really check Putin's power, and that gets us back to a personalistic patronal autocracy. But I do think it's a dangerous point for any autocracy when they have to use more and more force to keep people down. It is in many ways an act of desperation. So, Catherine, before we go, I do want to ask you a little bit about the prospects for peace in Ukraine between Russia and Ukraine, and really even just the West. In your book, Russia Resurrected, you write, Russia, after 20 years under Vladimir Putin's leadership, was anything but conventional in its approach to foreign policy. What does Putin's unpredictability mean for prospects towards peace in Ukraine? So I think we've been looking at things we can easily measure or quantify in estimating Russia's global influence, right? So at its peak, let's say, it had 3% of the global economy compared to, I don't know, China's like 17 or 18% the US, something like that. That's not very remarkable. It was, you know, the fourth or fifth highest spender overall in terms of its military, but it had ICBMs. It has a pretty big population, 145 million, but the US is something like 325 million, China, India, over a billion. So, you know, not the biggest country in the world. 
But what we didn't look at was things that give it leverage over other countries. And one of them is oil and gas. That is an area where in the global economy, Russia is a really weighty, important actor. And I think we underestimated what that means. And also that it is a weighty, important actor in moving that resource around the world. So it also controls a lot of pipelines now. And that's one thing it got out of Syria. Syria was not a quagmire because we as a liberal democracy, you know, and Mr. Obama, when he was president, said, now they'll be stuck there and it'll be a quagmire. Well, because he's thinking like a good liberal Democrat. You broke it, you fix it. That's not how Mr. Putin thinks. His attitude is, I didn't break Syria. That's Assad's problem. Here's what I'm going to get out of it. And here's how it's going to pay for itself. And so now they control the big pipelines that converge and move in to Tardis, where they now have a permanent port uh, on the Mediterranean, thus giving them even more control over energy supply into Europe and elsewhere. So I think, you know, we looked at the wrong things, misinformation, and how effectively they use that. They use it globally. They didn't just use it in our election. There's a portion of the American population that thinks Vladimir Putin is great and a terrific, strong leader. And one of them happens to be a former president of the United States who could well be president again of the United States. And that is disastrous for global democracy. That is disastrous for the United States in our position in the world. And that is great for Vladimir Putin and autocrats like him. And so that is a big danger to peace in this region and frankly in Europe. In Ukraine, in terms of prospects for peace, well, I think we have to keep on supporting Ukraine and the Ukrainians. But this isn't some academic debate, you know, that John Mearsheimer is able to carry out of great powers doing what great powers do. It's not inevitable that Russia behaves this way. This is because of this kind of regime. This is not structural, because if it were the way Mearsheimer evaluates power, Russia should be weak, right? It's not a great power. It is because of the kind of regime that governs Russia in the way that it has appealed globally and used the tools that it has, which are not the conventional tools the Soviet Union used, which was military and ideology. Russia has no positive ideological platform to put forward. This is not transformational in terms of global development, as the Soviets claimed communism was. This is just a corrupt, cronyistic autocracy that believes in nothing except stealing from you know the people it governs and, and showing others how to do the same and supporting those who do. So, you know, Ukraine really, not to be overly dramatic, Justin, but <laughs> it really is, I think, at the forefront of a global struggle to maintain liberal democracy and the liberal democratic ideal. And like my friend and colleague here at Stanford um, has just written Liberalism and Its Discontents. The core of liberalism, classical liberalism, is tolerance. You wouldn't necessarily do the same thing as your neighbor but you tolerate their doing it. Well, Russia is intolerant under Mr. Putin. It is intolerant of the idea of Ukraine or Belarus or Georgia or other Western-leaning former republics of the Soviet Union determining their own future and making their own choices. And that is, as I said, the essence of the classical liberal idea that we're all supposed to believe in in liberal democracies globally. So that's why I think it is a, a fight uh, really for the core of the ideology of liberalism, liberal democracy, tolerance. Well, Catherine, thank you so much for joining me. You're one of those people that I turn to, to be able to understand Russia better. So I was so happy to be able to see your piece, follow you along on Twitter, and happy to learn more from you. Thank you so much for joining me today. All right. My pleasure. Thanks so much for having me again, Justin.
If you are listening to the show, please leave a review. It really does help shows like mine stand out. Also, please share the show with colleagues and friends because word of mouth goes a very long way. Facebook and Twitter are great, but really just talk about it. There's a full transcript at www.democracyparadox.com. Thank you for listening. The Democracy Paradox podcast is sponsored by the Kellogg Institute for International Studies, part of the Keough School of Global Affairs at the University of Notre Dame. The Kellogg Institute has a 40-year history of excellence in advancing research and education on global democracy and human development. Learn more about the Kellogg Institute, including its world-renowned visiting fellowships for scholars at various stages of their careers at kellogg.nd.edu.